0: Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now,
1: here's your host, Michael Stelsner.
0: Hello, happy new year. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Stelsner. This is the podcast for marketers and for business owners who wanna know what works with social media. Very excited about today's show. Today, we're going to explore why so many of us fail to start, and we're going to do this with none other than Seth Godin, who is the author of the brand new book, The Icarus Deception, and the author of a million other books that you may be familiar with, like Tribes and Purple Cow. Also, what I want to do today is introduce our very first caller question.
1: Fresh off the jungle trail, here's
0: this week's social question. So Robin has a question that uh, she recorded on our caller hotline, so I'm going to go ahead and play the question, and then I'll go ahead and answer it. Hey, Mike, it's Robin Carlisle with robincarlisle.info here. Um, Just wanted to ask a a question about what do you do when uh, when you're interviewing an expert, and that interview doesn't go quite like the way you thought it was going to go? You know, that's a great question, and I've done a lot of interviews, and I've definitely dealt with this, Rob, and thank you for asking it. So a couple things, first of all, when you're about to start the interview, for example, today, when I started the interview with Seth, um, I had previously sent him the questions ahead of time and asked him if he was cool with it. And he said, yes. The second thing I told him is I said, okay, Seth, this is who our audience is. So he could kind of contextualize it in his brain a little bit. So that's really critical And I also told him what I wanted to focus on. So, for example, I told him originally um, I wanted to focus on Kickstarter, which I'm going to be talking about, how he used Kickstarter. But he said, I'd really like it if you'd focus on this. So this kind of helped us negotiate what we're going to talk about. And I do this whether I'm in person, whether I'm over the the internet, so to speak, is to just kind of negotiate with the person about what you want to talk about and what they want to talk about. And typically, it's just a very, very simple uh, transaction that happens over email. So if you do that, that greatly reduces the chances of this conversation with this expert going way off the deep end. But the bottom line is you're always going to have situations where the person you're interviewing is going to want to talk about something, perhaps it's off script. The first piece of advice is it's okay sometimes to just follow the flow and just go with it. But sometimes when you feel like it's gone down a rabbit trail, that's a trail you don't want to go down. The easiest way to get back on the main trail is just to say something as simple as, hey, thanks for that. My next question is, and you just see how I acknowledged what the person said, and then I transitioned quickly to the next question in a way that doesn't seem awkward or anything. So it's just, thanks for that. My next question is, And that just allows everything to kind of go back on track. It's kind of like the equivalent of if you're talking to a person, putting your hands out in the air and drawing them closer together, which gets their eyes focused on you so that you can keep moving in the next direction. Well, thank you for that question, Robin. And I want to encourage other people to call in and leave your questions uh, on anything related to social media. Our voicemail hotline is socialmediaexaminer.com slash voicemail. It's very easy to use. All you have to do is um, have a computer and that has a microphone on it and speak into the service and it will uh, record you and I may select you for a future show. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. So uh, with that, let's transition over to the interview with Seth Godin. To help simplify your
1: social safari, here's this week's special guest.
0: I am so excited to be joined today by Seth Godin. He's the best-selling author of a number of books, including The Purple Cow, Tribes, Lynchpin, and a ton others. He's also the CEO of Squiddo, and his most recent book is The Icarus Deception. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. So today we're going to explore why people often accept their lot in life and fail to make a difference, and we're also going to talk a little bit about how USAth used Kickstarter to fund the Icarus deception. Um, but let me step back for a second and ask you what prompted you to write the Icarus Deception?
1: Well, I've spent uh more than half my life teaching, whether it was at the summer camp where I started um, or in various universities. Uh, or now through the informal kind of teaching that I do. And it is incredibly frustrating to me to see people who have bought into the propaganda of the industrial age. Uh, It was fine when it worked for them. It was fine when it enabled people uh, to hide and be happy at the same time. But now everywhere I look, I find people who are frustrated at the same time that I see people who are leaving opportunities untapped. And I wanted to bring those two things together uh, in a manifesto, a rant, that would hopefully shine some light on
0: the revolution that I think we're living with right this minute. Can you just comment on the revolution we're living in right this minute a little bit? What is that exactly? Well, you know, the revolution
1: of 1910 or 1880, the Industrial Revolution, is something we got taught about in social studies class, and everyone knows what it was. I don't think people understand the impact of it. Before 1880, there were no such thing as jobs. Uh, The unemployment rate was zero. Uh, People probably worked on the land, or they worked for their father, or they worked in the family business, unless they were the king. And the Industrial Revolution changed all that. And it also changed government, and regulations, and school, and culture, and society. And it invented the weekend, and everything else. And we accept all that, because it happened before we were born. Mm. And right now we have a new revolution, one that is replacing the industrial age, because the industrial age is fading away. And what is happening instead is we have a revolution built around connection, around the connection we have with ideas, people to people, the ability to reach markets, the thought that one person working by themselves anywhere in the world with a laptop can touch a million or a billion people. You know, that Tsai, who made a video in South Korea, has been seen more than 900 million times. This was impossible 15 years ago. Or we think about uh, the strike that just happened in Southern California when the uh, the docks got closed for just a few days, and uh, Southern California was losing a billion dollars a day. Mm. They weren't losing a billion dollars a day because the factories weren't working. They were losing the money because connections weren't being made. And so here's this opportunity, if we choose, to think completely differently about how we spend our day and what we think is important.
0: How long do you think this revolution has been going on, in your opinion? Is it something that's relatively now, or has it been going on ever since the invention of the internet? Well, I think that there have been
1: uh, pockets of it for 50 years uh, that we see. You know, if you think about uh, the miracle of Visa and MasterCard, Visa and MasterCard are nothing but two pages of instructions about how banks should cooperate. Mm. Um, And it's the connections that create all the value, not the piece of plastic. So this goes back a ways, but bit by bit every industry is being transformed in this method. So when I wrote Permission Marketing 12 years ago, I didn't realize it, but what I was really writing about was a different way to make connection with people. Um, And you you can take that... A 100 times over. This isn't about Facebook or Twitter. This is about uh, a passion for doing things that might not work. And the industrial age is about polishing things so that they do work. And that is the giant gap. I want to teach people to like the
0: idea of doing something that might not work. So in your book, you talk about how the commonly told version of the Icarus story is no longer relevant. Can you share what's been left out Um, the part about not going too low?
1: Well, you know, all myths are true to the extent not that there are supernatural beings involved, but that they are about us, that myths have developed over thousands of years to talk to human beings about how to be our best selves. And the myth of Icarus involves his father, Daedalus, and and Icarus stranded on an island and... Um, Daedalus fashions some wings for his son. And he says, put these on, but don't fly too high, because if you do, the sun will melt the wax and you will die. And then he says, but no one's ever heard this part because they took it out of the books about 80 years ago. He says, but more important, don't fly too low. Because if you fly too low, the mist in the water will get in your wings and you will surely perish. Mm and the industrialists want us to fly too low the industrialists benefit when we fly too low and i want to you know ring a bell and say wait a second all of us are flying too low we're in too much debt we're settling for too
0: much compliance we're not making a big enough difference let's do something about that and the something that you recommend people do is to make art if i'm not mistaken can you clarify what you mean by that making right. art right so
1: it's it's really easy to to sort of hide from this uh, about what I mean when I talk about making art because we think we're talking about, I don't know, Picasso or something. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Art is the work of a human being doing something that's never been done before to make a positive difference, an impact on somebody else. It's about a human being doing something knowing that it might not work. And so if you paint the same thing twice, if you're the second artist who puts a urinal into uh, a artist, art exhibit, you are not an artist, you're a plumber. But the first person who does it, the first person who takes that chance, who extends themselves, who makes a story happen, that person is an artist.
0: Why do you think a lot of people aren't making art and maybe never will?
1: There's only one reason, and it has nothing to do with talent. And it has everything to do with fear and propaganda and being brainwashed. We are not taught to say this might not work. No one goes to fourth grade or eighth grade or college saying, good news, I'm gonna to get to do something today that I'm not sure it's going to work. Mm. That that's not what our grades are about, and it's not what our coaches look for in our sporting teams, and it's not what we get judged on when we go for a job interview, right? That the question, tell me your biggest weakness is a trick question, because you're not supposed to have a weakness. right? Um, but in fact, artists, are full of weaknesses and artists are constantly failing. Picasso painted 100 amazing paintings and he painted 9,900 not very amazing paintings.
0: Ah.
1: Um, And and so uh, what I really am trying to point out to people is when you think about which podcast you listen to and you think about which blogs you read or you think about which brand of computer you are coveting to buy, none of those things are things that were around a few years ago. Which means that the person who chose to do it, someone like you, Michael, one day woke up and said, this might not work, but I'm going to do it anyway.
0: I'm venturing to guess that a lot of the successful people in the world had a lot of failures before they got successful. And I'm just going to ask you, Seth, what were some of the things that you failed at that led you to this point?
1: Well, you know, one of the books that I'm not selling that I made uh, for this season is called uh, This Might Work. And it's an 800-page, 19-pound volume, the biggest book I've ever seen. But if you turn it over, the name of the book is really This Might Not Work. And the first three pages of the other side is a list of things I did that completely and utterly failed, including the time I was threatened with arrest by the vice president of AOL uh, and the time that uh, I launched one book after another that didn't sell, or the 900 rejection letters I got in a row wow. when I started as a book packager. Um, the list goes on and on and on, and I'm proud of every single one of them. I wouldn't trade them in for a million dollars.
0: What are you going to say to people that uh, are um, dealing with the failures right now? How, you know, in hindsight, what, or better said, what would you say to yourself going back in time after those 900 rejection letters, now that you know what you know about where you are today?
1: You know, as I said, I wouldn't change anything because I'm glad I ended up the way I did. But what I wish I knew is that everything's going to be okay. That part of what it means to make art is not to bet your house and every penny you have because you have to have enough left to keep playing. That the game goes to the person who fails the most. But you don't get to fail the most if you get thrown out of the game. Mm. So it's about exposing yourself to emotional labor and risk. It's about connecting with people in a generous way and not beating yourself up when you're wrong. Um, Because the kind of wrong I'm talking about is not the wrong of selfishness uh, or the wrong of arrogance. It's
0: instead the hubris of good intentions. How How many failures did it take before you figured this out? Have I figured it
1: out? I don't know if I figured it out. Well, you're
0: teaching us. So either you're figuring it out as you go. (laughs) I mean, you you figured out how to use your failure.
1: I'm making all this stuff up. And if it doesn't work, bring the book back to the bookstore for a refund. Um, (laughs) You know, anyone who draws you a map has done you no favors because maps aren't worth anything if you're an artist. All you need is a compass. And so I'm not here telling people I figured it out. I'm here saying, here's a compass. That direction is north. Figure out a way to get from here to there.
0: Well, it's the figuring out that's the privilege. One thing you have figured out is that failure is necessary. It seems, and and um, because clearly that has uh, led to the book and the risk. I'm guessing, but I could be wrong. Um, yes, I want that part. I figured out, and I figured that out.
1: Uh, let's see. Zig taught that to me in 1987, when I was 27 years old, um, and we used to have a database uh, for all the ideas I had at my book packaging company. And there was fields for name, address, firm, phone number, because there were no email addresses. Uh, And then which project did we send them? And then right next to it, there was a checkbox that either had to say yes or uh, no for now. And so there wasn't a box for no, it was no for now. We haven't, we haven't found out how to solve your problem yet but we will. And this idea of no for now, that failure is not permanent, it is merely a lesson on the way to getting something useful done, uh, is something that I have known, is something I forget and need to be reminded of. And now I find myself in the role of the reminder.
0: You spend a pretty significant portion of your book, The Icarus Deception, talking about actually the, the, the concept of what goes into art. And you describe seeing, making, and embracing the blank slate can you start with seeing and describe a little bit about what that is
1: sure so um you know the the bibliography for this book uh is 30 or 40 or 50 books so forgive me if i don't give the right credit but it's in the book um seeing means well i'll give you an example clive davis one of the great music producers ever um could tell the difference between someone who was going to become Aretha Franklin and someone who wasn't going to sell any records at all. Uh, Thomas Hoving, famously celebrated in Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, could tell in a heartbeat if something was a 3,000-year-old statue or merely a fake. Mm. Um, People like Fred Wilson and Brad Feld can look at a business plan and say, this one's got a great shot of working and this one doesn't. They see what you and I can't. And the way you learn to see is by practicing, by predicting, by writing it down. You know, if you want to be uh, really good at viral video, the way you do it is you look at videos before they come viral and you write down your prediction as to whether they're going to make it or not. And over time, you're going to get better at predicting because you're going to see the difference between right and wrong. You're going to see
0: the opportunity. You're going to see what others are struggling with. So that's the first step. Now, it seems to me as if the second step is where everyone starts with the making, but they don't start with the scene.
1: Correct. You know, you go to art school and they don't spend very much time on step one, but they spend a ton of time saying, here's how you draw a circle. Here's how you learn the technique. And having technique is silly if you don't know what it is you're trying to do with the technique. Um, And so for me, studying, I don't know, a million business projects so far has helped me see, which gives me the incentive to learn how to make.
0: So when, yeah, when you, go ahead and elaborate on the making component. What have you discovered?
1: Well, so there's a lot. When you meet somebody who doesn't know how to change their email settings or doesn't understand the concept behind the architecture of the internet or doesn't know how to write a note without spelling a lot, A-L-O-T, Um, This person hasn't learned how to make in their chosen field, Uh, that having your hands on the tactics and knowing how to make what's in your head happen, whether you do it with your own two hands or hire someone, is critical, that you can't do art unless you can execute against it.
0: Now, this third thing is quite intriguing, embracing the blank slate. I think this is a big problem for a lot of people. Um, can you elaborate a little bit about what that means?
1: Well, if it's in a fa- if it's in a dummy's book, it's not a blank slate. That the only thing we consider art is something that hasn't been done before, at least not in our experience. Uh, so if you're not comfortable working in a space where there's no one to copy, then you're going to have a very hard time being an artist. So we look at someone like Jeff Koons. Uh, who's notorious, famous, and rich. Uh, One of his most recent pieces is a a balloon animal, one of those dogs, Um, but it's 30 feet tall and it's made out of metal. Now, Jeff didn't actually pour the metal mold. He hired someone to do that. He knew how to make because he knew how to call the right person. He knew how to see because the thing he chose to make giant worked when it was giant. He had an innate sense that if he took the simple childish balloon animal that carries so much Proustian baggage and enlarged it and made it shiny and made it precious, he would have actually created a ruckus. And then the third thing he did was he didn't look around and say, who else has made a giant balloon animal and how well have they done with it? Let me research this before I do it. Instead, he just did it. And he took advantage of the fact that He had found a niche, a spot within the world of fine art, and then he filled it.
0: So what does all of this mean to the marketer or the entrepreneur who's listening right now? All I'm trying to do
1: is get you to ask a different set of questions. That most entrepreneurs are so focused on raising more money than their peers that they look to find all the magical steps and all the phone numbers and all the processes and dress the same way and have their PowerPoints be the same way. You know, I dearly love the guys at Techstars, but their rigid way of making everyone's PowerPoint look the same is a fear-based thing, right? Um, And instead, what I'm hoping people will do is look forward to waking up in the morning and saying, you know what? This might not work. That if you find in your organization that it is okay to end a meeting, and I hope you're ending meetings sooner rather than later, if you end a meeting by saying, this, not, this might not work, let's do it, then you're on the right path. But if you're ending meetings by saying, this might not work, let's study it until we're sure, then you are merely an industrialist that is working in an industrial age that is fading away.
0: So what I hear you saying is, I mean, in not so many words, just do it. I mean, I, it's a horrible, simple phrase that Nike came up with, but go for it is what I hear you saying.
1: Well, I want to I want add a lot more nuance to it because the notion of making uh, flies in the face of just do it, right? Do it is okay with me, but just do it is not because just do it implies a lack of preparation and sloppiness Good in point. the word just. And so there are plenty of people who cross my desk who have read too many cold calling books, but not enough books on generosity and who have thought too hard about how to interrupt people and be uh, aggressive, but haven't thought nearly enough about what it means to make something so wonderful that people will seek you out. And I think you have to combine both of them in order to do something we could call art.
0: Now, you said in the book that this was one of your more risky books. Can you explain why you feel it's a bit more risky than some of your other books?
1: If you go to a sushi restaurant anywhere in the United States, um, the easiest, most popular, most profitable bit of sushi to to order is California Roll. Uh, Everyone likes California Rolls. They won't make you sick. They're tasty. They're easy to make. Uh, If you go to a real sushi restaurant they probably won't enjoy making it for you, and they'd rather sell you uni, or Batera or some other thing that's a a demonstration of their art and skill, and that might change the way you think about how you eat. And, you know, I find myself in the very lucky position of being able to write about just about anything I want to. So if I wrote Permission Marketing Part 2, the handbook, or if I wrote the step-by-step manual on how to make a purple cow, I would get way more applause and no one would tell me I was full of it. Um, And I'm not doing that because that's not art and it's not me and it's not personal and it's not generous. It's merely playing to the crowd. And what is already happening with this book is I'm hearing from people who say, uh, you said what I needed to hear and you changed my life. And I'm also hearing from people who have said, I don't get it. And it's okay with me if you don't get it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, I absolutely love the book and I know it's a complicated concept to kind of help people understand that maybe they've been programmed (laughs) to believe in a lie or to believe in something that's no longer relevant. But, uh, and I think you do a brilliant job weaving lots of stories to help people understand um, where, you know, this is all headed. And I strongly recommend people check it out. I do want to spend just a minute talking about something super creative that you did. And you typically get extremely creative with your, your book ideas. Um, back in the summer of 2012, um, you did a Kickstarter campaign for the Icarus Deception. Can you share a little bit about um, your experience with that? And, and was there a strategy behind that?
1: Well, the biggest strategy was, you know, I saw it, my friend, uh, Amanda F. Palmer. Oh, we're not on TV. I can say her full name. Uh, Amanda F. Palmer had done um, (laughs) with Kickstarter uh, six weeks earlier, which is the most successful music Kickstarter ever. She had organized her tribe, raised $1.2 million um, and made quite a ruckus. And it occurred to me that lots of people in book publishing would want to see how that might work for a book. And so I didn't do it because I needed a way to get my book into the world. I did it because I wanted to make a point to authors about how to organize your readers. Because if you organize your readers, then the publishers understand they have no power. Um, so that once I had 4,500 readers organized and 10,000 copies of the book spoken for, that's the hard part, right? Then the publisher comes along, and I could have picked any publisher I wanted. And they say, wow, if you've already got this core group ready to go, sure, we'll take the risk of bringing this to the world. Um, and my point was not, isn't it cool that Seth Godin can do this? My point was, anyone who is willing to spend seven years building an audience can do this.
0: You raised about 280000 when I last looked. Um, is this something that's repeatable? Or do you think this is uh, was a one-time deal because of the uniqueness of the circumstances and the situation for other authors, for example?
1: Well, it's totally repeatable because Very few people are writing to my tribe directly. Um, So that's A. B, I just want to make it clear, I spent every penny and more to make the stuff because the goal is not to profit from your tribe. The goal is to delight your tribe so that they will bring other people along. So from the very first minute, this was not how do I make a profit from this core group? It was how do I organize this core group and delight them?
0: Do you um, believe that uh, this is an example, this Kickstarter campaign is an example of part of the revolution and the way things are being done differently?
1: Exactly. You know, everything I try to do is self-referential. One person, you know, I got the idea to do the Kickstarter campaign a day and a half before I did the Kickstarter campaign. Wow. Right? So one person by himself is able to reach a million people through a blog that I run for $20 a month and... Uh, within three hours reach my minimum and within seven days sell out almost all of it without help from any industrial ventures, without taking any financial risk, just by pressing keys on a keyboard. And yeah, I'm an extreme example because I have diligently spent seven years delighting my core audience. And so no one's promising you that you get to be a successful artist tomorrow. What I'm saying is you can whine all day about the death of the industrial economy, Or you can shift gears fast and start taking advantage of the birth of the connection economy.
0: Seth, what's the main message that you hope people will take home from your new book? Uh, Well, I guess... uh, Like if there's one thing that you hope people do as a result of consuming your book, what would it be? If you take the cover off and look on the
1: inside of the jacket... There's the sun. And it says right on top of it what I'm hoping people will do...
0: It says, can you read it? Well, I don't have it in front of me, but I've memorized it. I think it says fly closer to the sun. There you go. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, Seth, I think that uh, your book has come out at a very good time. I think being a new year and everything, a lot of people are looking into the future and wondering what they're going to do. And I hope that it does inspire millions to be artists. Um, If people want to discover more about you and your book, The Icarus Deception, where would you recommend they go?
1: Well, if you just Google The Icarus Deception, I think you'll find plenty about it. Um, You'll find my book list. uh, You'll find free samples. You'll find some videos. So, you know, Google works. Let's give it a try.
0: Seth Godin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for what you do. Leading your tribe is important and generous, and it's not easy. So I'm glad
0: you continue to do it. Appreciate you, Seth. Thanks. Well, I definitely want to encourage you to go ahead and pick up a copy of Seth's book, The Icarus Deception. I really enjoyed the book, and I think you'll find a lot of great information inside of there. also want to mention that you can find the show notes at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 22. And if you enjoyed this interview and you're a regular listener to the podcast, uh, I'd love it if you would let your friends know about us. The easiest way to do that, and you can do this even on your mobile phone, is to visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. This will pre-populate a tweet into your Twitter stream, letting your friends know all about it. This does bring us to the end of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. Uh, I'd love it if you'd consider heading over to iTunes and giving us a written review. You can do that at socialmediaexaminer.com slash iTunes. That'll take you directly there. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world.